Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Lukey Gail Tobin and I are joined by the two members of the Alaska House of Representatives that represent the two districts that make up Senator Tobin's Senate District I. Our first conversation is with District 18 State Representative Cliff Grow. Our second conversation is with District 17 State Representative Zach Fields. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Tobin and I are joined by freshman State Representative Cliff Grow. Senator Tobin, good morning. Good morning, Mike. I want you to know it is 7 a.m. Exactly. And Representative Grow, good morning. Thanks, and I feel lucky to be here. Uh, as uh, Senator Tobin uh, noted, today is uh, it's the morning of day 70 in the Alaska State Legislature. That's the day we are recording this. And uh, we wanted to check in with, uh, with Representative Grow to see, I don't know, how things are going uh, as we are at uh, a little over the halfway point. It kind of depends on how far we go. What, what are your thoughts so far, Representative Grow? Well, I feel really lucky to be here, as I said, and I mean that in both senses, both in this podcast and also be, to be in the Alaska State Legislature. I'm a lifelong Alaska resident who really wanted to help solve our problems, and uh, I feel, uh, as I said, fortunate to be here to help address them. They've uh, apparently gotten worse recently, and so they or the the seriousness of our problems have become more obvious in recent days. And I'm working with uh, Senator Tobin and other legislators to try to uh, address that. Senator Tobin, what are your thoughts as we're at day seventy? You know, a little over halfway through. It is intriguing to me the number of folk who are really interested in identifying sustainable, practical, and quite frankly, probable solutions to some of our more persistent fiscal woes. I am very heartened to be joined by Representative Grow, who for many know is one of the architects of the Permanent Fund. The opportunity for us to have those who are intimately familiar with the complexity and the components of that particular resource is beyond helpful because we have tried to tackle this issue for what feels like nigh a decade. And here we have some real solutions on the table that I think are going to galvanize a majority of the votes. So let's talk briefly about the Alaska Permanent Fund. So uh, it is uh, a very unique thing. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. There are other sovereign wealth funds out there, but they are uh, uh, they are handled differently. And the Alaska Permanent Fund is uh, it is so uniquely Alaskan and is so important to so many people. And that has been represented by election after election after election. 
So how do we address this thing that has, uh, has uh, become basically the largest source of revenue for the state of Alaska and is so important to the uh, financial independence of so many Alaskans? Uh, I know, Representative Groh, you've got some distinct thoughts. What, do we, what is the solution here? Well, first of all, I want to talk briefly about my uh, uh, background in this. I had a really sort of tiny role in creating the permanent Alaska Permanent Fund by being one of tens of thousands of Alaskans who voted for the constitutional amendment who, which created the permanent fund back in, wait for it, when I was very young in 1976. I had a really substantial role and feel lucky to have that in the creation of a different very um, famous Alaska institution, um, the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, uh, which I uh, uh, worked on and, and was the legislative staff member who worked by far the most in helping to create um, the Permanent Fund Dividend when it was established uh, uh, here in the Alaska legislature in 1982. So what I think one of the most really important things to do about the Permanent Fund is to protect it. Uh, right now, it's at risk in an important sense. The uh, a permanent fund is now set up in, the way it was originally in 1976 as two accounts, uh, one being the uh, principal or corpus, which is constitutionally protected. It can only be spent by the vote of the people. And then, in a very different legal status, sits the other account, the permanent fund earnings reserve account, which the legislature could spend by a simple majority vote of the House and the Senate this week, next month. Um, and last I checked, that was more than $13 billion. So I'm going to jump in here because I and, and you and I have had many conversations about this. And I'm not a kid either, Mike. And I just want to add one context here. And, and you tell me whether I'm looking at this wrong. And Senator Tobin, you can tell me whether I'm looking at this wrong as well. We actually have spent large portions of the ERA by pumping that back into the principal of the permanent fund. And if you go look at the absolute overall value, billions of dollars have been lost that way in recent. Uh, at one point, uh, I think it was last year, it was uh, $81 billion. We're now at $76 billion. So uh, an argument could be made that that money could have been better used being spent helping people in Alaska, dealing with infrastructure and other things like that. And I know you and I have had this conversation before. So how do you address that, that point, that argument? Uh, what I'm concerned about is that as our massive structural deficit um, for the state of Alaska faces becomes more and more obvious to people in recent events over the last 10 days, um, including both the release of the spring revenue forecast by the Alaska Department of Revenue, which was painted a much bleaker picture of our uh, state's public finances going forward, and also some greater awareness that the uh, development of the Willow uh, uh, oil field project uh, will be a financial loser for the state of Alaska's treasury in the initial years. Th those two things t uh, put together have helped people recognize that the state of Alaska is it does have a big structural deficit, as I said, of a uh, billion dollars next year and going up to more than $2 billion in future years, each year, as far as the eye can see. So what I'm concerned about, Mike, to answer your question, is that the legislature would just spend the permanent fund earnings reserve account in a spree um, from uh, anything from um, deciding that, well, uh, we, uh, uh, I mean, in terms of one of my grimmer scenarios that I have is 
a Russian billionaire comes to Alaska and says, uh, I will build the pipeline if you give me $10 billion. And the legislature appropriates the Alaska um, permanent funds, per, er, earnings reserve, permanent funds, earnings reserves account to that Russian billionaire. Um, that would be a very bad outcome for our state. Um, and um, so what I proposed uh, and introduced, um, House Joint Resolution 9, which is a proposed constitutional amendment that would protect the permanent fund earnings reserve account from being spent in a spree. So uh, I feel uh, um, happy that a quarter of the Alaska State House uh, has joined me uh, in introducing this resolution that would co- that would combine the permanent fund earnings reserve account uh, and the permanent fund principal, also known as the corpus, um, into a single constitutionally protected account that would then um, be uh, generating uh, revenues uh, or, or income sustainably or earnings sustainably for the state of Alaska to spend for things on like uh, uh, better roads, better schools, better public safety, as well as permanent fund dividends. So um, I'm very much against the, the possibility that legislature blowing the permanent fund earnings reserve account in a spree. Right? That, that's a critical part of the permanent fund. Um, so that is one uh, major uh, measure that I have advanced and it's already had its first hearing in the House Ways and Means Committee, on which I sit as a, on as a member. Senator Tobin, there are some tough votes coming up uh, regarding the PFD and the Alaska Permanent Fund. I don't want to ask you about like how things are going to turn out, but big picture, w- w- how do we uh, how do we address these two great big elephants in this empty office that we're sitting in? Well, and I'm going to throw another big elephant, which is the base student allocation and increasing resources to schools. I think we have some difficult choices to make, and it's going to cause some consternation with members who have held particular viewpoints up until now. But we've got to prioritize investing in our future. We need to prioritize ensuring Alaska is a place that folk want to move to and thrive in, and we need to ensure that the constitutional obligations we have as a legislature are funded and funded well. So it's it's going to be a, a difficult few weeks. I am interested to see how the Senate rules, Senate Bill 114 moves, and the conversation we have around new revenues. Uh, It is no secret that I am in support of a broad-based tax. I think Representative Grow has floated a really interesting idea of how we get additional revenues through such a system. That is not yet on the table. I am hopeful that the beginning of the revenue conversation gets us to the recognition that we need all hands on deck to make sure our schools are well-supported, our roads are pristine, and our marine highway is serving its community with alacrity. Rep. Cliff Grill, uh, back in 2017 and parts of 2018, you and I would occasionally have a conversation uh, down on the first floor uh, as you were in this building uh, pushing forward on a uh, kind of a complete fiscal plan, which was the, the priority of the, the bipartisan coalition that I was working for at the time. And uh, so in 2017, when we were having those conversations, if you could fast forward to today, at that time, would you have thought we would be in this position today with almost no movement on any of those great big issues that we were talking about back then? First of all, I want to note that 
uh, Mal, let Senator Tobin speak for herself, but both she and I might have been surprised to think in 2017 that we'd be sitting in the legislature in 2023. Uh, but like I said, I'll let her t- talk about her own reaction about that. But to answer your question um, d- directly, Mike, I was hopeful then. Um, I was hopeful in different periods. I was hopeful in the in August of 2021. I sound a little, maybe a little plaintive here, but I believed that there might have been some more progress in that third special session in the uh, the legislature had in the year of 2021. And I came for weeks and weeks in 2017, at the beginning of the of the legislative session. Then I also came for weeks um, and was here in Juneau for the whole uh, special, third special session in August and September of 2021. Um, I was optimistic in both those periods. Obviously, there, there were um, some big changes made, particularly the adoption of the percent of market value system in 2018 that the legislature made that it adopted a, a, um, some statutes that created a regime under which the permit fund earnings can be spent sustainably. The problem is, is that it's only in the statute, so the legislature can violate um, the sta- those statutes every year by passing the budget, which is the statute in itself. That's why, like I said, we, why we need to put in a plug for my House Joint Resolution 9. But I do think there's been some progress made, as Senator Tobin said, and some greater reg- recognition. Um, I, too, like her, am encouraged by um, the uh, introduction of Senate Bill 114, which has um, uh, includes some um, increases um, in oil taxes that would provide additional revenues to our state. I also am going to be introducing my own um, proposal, similar to one that uh, um, um, our former uh, state senator for, for much of uh, the district of representative, the Senator Tobin represents now, Senator Tom Baggage, he introduced a bill addressing the uh, petroleum property tax. I'm going to introduce a similar bill, uh, I believe, I hope this week, depending on how fast legislative lawyers can draft it. Um, that would also raise um, some additional revenues for our state. I'm additionally interested and have, would support a broad-based tax, particularly if it was designed the right way. Um, if we're going to have a broad-based tax that would tax um, individuals um, in Alaska, I very much support one that focuses on high earners, on people who make a lot of money in Alaska, both residents and non-residents. And I would be much less interested in supporting a bill which will apparently be introduced in the House today that would impose a statewide uh, sales tax of general application in Alaska, which would very much tax uh, Alaskans and be a, a stealthy tax that would take money um, all year long, whatever people bought the uh, items, uh, as opposed to a high earner tax, that would be a clear, uh, honest, and um, much more transparent tax that would focus on people with the most ability to pay um, who make money in Alaska, both residents and non-residents, as I said. It's interesting because I've heard a few folks uh, float a sales tax, and I'm just going to go on my tiny little rant here about sales tax, which effectively are regressive. They impact particularly women more detrimentally than they do anyone else. For some reason, women's products cost more. If you go to Fred Meyer's or Cars Safeway, you'll see head and shoulders for women cost about a buck more than just regular head and shoulders. A sales tax will disproportionately hit a particular part of our population, a part of our population that is providing for our childcare, a part of our population that is ensuring our young kids get to school on time, a part of our population who is disproportionately leading our nonprofits. It is not the best way to go about ensuring that our state is fiscally solvent. 
what I would like to see is us actually recoup some of the resources from those who are coming into our state, earning high wages, and then leaving. This sales tax, any sales tax, would not capture the resource from those individuals using our infrastructure, but not putting any money into the collective good. I particularly think of two people, and um, we'll just use their names here on this podcast, uh, Todd and Crystal. Todd is the name of my former dentist. I fired him. I got another dentist. I don't want you to think I let my teeth go to a pot. But I fired my dentist in, in um, late 2019 when I found out that although his practice was very convenient to me, it was then in, uh, then located and is still located on the Park Strip in, in, in Anchorage, he lives in Utah. Todd lives in Utah and flies to Anchorage 34 weeks a year, four days a week, um, and makes all his money um, in Anchorage, in, in Alaska, while paying taxes to the state of Utah on, on the income which he makes exclusively in Alaska. And I thought, this dentist, Todd, is making money off the backs of Alaskans. I was not interested in supporting it. So I got a new dentist. And I, I also think of one of my constituents, someone who does not live in Utah, but lives on Government Hill, Crystal. Crystal works two jobs. She works five days a week for the state of Alaska for $24 an hour. And she works for, the, for a hospital on Sundays, on a full shift on Sundays, all day long, making $22 an hour. And this sales tax proposal, which is going to be introduced today, would hammer Crystal, who makes under $25 an hour for a lot of work, and, uh, and to make life easy um, for um, Todd, uh, who I don't know what he makes, but it's got to be an awful lot of money for him to um, uh, live in Utah, leave his wife and three sons behind, and fly to Anchorage 34 weeks a year for four days a week. And um, I think our system is upside down when we are um, uh, like contorting ourselves here in the legislature to hurt people who make less than $25 an hour so that we can um, help people who make uh, $200, $300, $400 or more an hour. I want to move away from politics just a little bit and talk about uh, this building and kind of the switch in just the past few days. I think it was Friday. I got the email about uh, adjourning travel. And uh, uh, I don't know, I'd say about the middle of last week, you kind of saw the, uh, we went from the, from whatever quarter we were in to the two minute warning, because things, the, the urgency in the building, you just kind of could feel it. So one, uh, Representative Grow, have you, uh, have you kind of felt that urgency that we have in this building to actually get legislation passed before everybody goes home? Uh, and how do you kind of deal with the, the, the building that things are ramping up and there's more committees and we're about to have uh, a budget amendments in the, in finance, which means you're going to have budget amendments on the floor, long floor sessions. Talk about the building and the urgency that we feel. There's just a, obviously a, a more pressure, a, a more forced uh, hard, hard work job was already um, a lot of hours. And I, I don't know that, all our constituents understand just how many hours this job is um, in January and February. But here um, in late March and going forward, it's even more intense. Um, I'm used to, uh, I'm on a committee that meets um, uh, nights and weekends now, uh, but soon that will be happening with more, you know, more committees and more, you know, and more floor sessions uh, going. We've already had our first call the house where one of our, we had to wait around for a while for one of our members to get back apparently from the restroom. There can be a lot more of those and, uh, and a lot more 
um, long days on the floor, as well as uh, a lot of committee meetings uh, happening faster and at odder times. And a lot of having to toggle back and forth between a lot of different issues and a lot of different matters um, with the pressure of the uh, end of the session, a regular session having to come to an end uh, by in the middle of May. Senator Tobin, your thoughts on kind of the urgency that uh, we apparently, or at least I start, I, I felt in the building. It is definitely very tangible. The sense of foreboding that is coming down the pipeline. There is uh, an expectation that some of the big pieces of legislation will move with aplomb. The difficulty is we still have to go through the legislative process, which is deliberative. It's slow moving by nature. It is meant to give everyone ample time to hear from the public, to understand the complexity of the issues that they are being asked to vote on. I am very curious to see how the end of this first session goes, particularly with outstanding items like the BSA on the table, the new revenue bill from, or excuse me, the the shift in revenue uh, generation in SB 114, and then also some of the other conversations we've been having around defined benefits and the budget cycle where we need to be putting additional resources to match federal dollars coming in for the Marine Highway and some of these other large-scale infrastructure projects, including the Port of Nome and the Port of Anchorage, or I think we now call it the Port of Alaska, if I am correct. All of these pieces are starting to to really take a lot of attention and time, which means some of the smaller things, the things that we deeply care about, we introduced because they were needed and necessary legislative fixes for our constituents may not continue to move forward. And I always find that really frustrating. My office is helping carry a bill that would exempt veterinarians from the prescription drug monitoring program. It has proven to be not useful when we talk about Uh, the very small, minute amounts of opioids that are prescribed to our four-legged family members. And I am unsure if that bill is going to make it to the finish line in this first session due to the other big issues sitting on the table. So it's going to be intriguing to watch. I have been in this with you before. Uh, I've been in this with the other folks in our office before. And one of the things that we keep talking about is radical rest, this idea that we do need to take some time out of this space to allow ourselves the opportunity to take a deep breath, to refocus, and to not do things with haste. And I'm hopeful other people in this building are taking similar advice. Uh, Both Representative Groh and Senator Tobin, I think, are planning uh, constituent meetings in the near future. I, I wanted to ask about the constituent meeting. When a person that uh, you represent walks in, what is it helpful for them to pass along to you? In other words, like like what kind of input should they be providing to you so that that person can get the output that they're they're hoping for? It's most helpful if it's something that uh, they care about, that's personal to them, and and uh, based on their personal experience. Um, I'm obviously happy to answer questions. Um, just as I know Senator Tobin is about how the government works or uh, uh, how particular uh, uh, you know policies are operating. But I'm particularly interested in people talking to me about um, their concerns or uh, good or bad experiences that they've had um, with the government 
and things that they, that they want or don't want to happen in a more particular individual way as opposed to, you know, people like will come up want to walk in and say, hey, I read X is true on the internet. Um, you know, I'm happy to um, uh, engage with them and answer that to the best that I can. But I'm particularly interested, in, like I said, in trying to help people with their particular problems or, uh, you know, it, or with broader policies they they like to either see uh, uh, advance uh, or fail and uh, uh, see what I can do to uh, address those kind of concerns. Uh, I'm going to echo Cliff here. I think there is often an opportunity for a constituent to bring forth a solution to something that I may not have necessarily seen as a hiccup or an issue or a problem. Many of the bills that I see moving through this building are because a constituent came to a legislator and said, hey, there's this glaring error that needs to be addressed. And through the legislative process, we're going to make the situation better for other Alaskans. I also very much enjoy just hearing about what's going on in the district. Are there things that I can help advocate for or things that I can bring attention to? One of the pieces that I really learned from Senator Begich is that this office carries weight. And so me sending an email to someone or me asking a question to someone results in a different response and a more speedy response. And I appreciate the opportunity to use the gravitas of this building to help make constituents' lives better. So we are almost out of time, but I'm going to wrap up with the question I've been asking uh, all of our guests today, Representative Cliff Grill. And that, uh, that question is, if you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote and they get to sit next to you in the uh, Alaska House of Representatives and help us out, who would that be? I'm going to go with a very famous American, um, Abraham Lincoln. I've read a lot about him, and it's perhaps um, a shocking admission that I probably shouldn't talk about too much. Then on a bet, I once named 50 Civil War generals in an hour. Um, I've read a lot about the Civil War. I've, I've read also about um, Abraham uh, Lincoln's uh, career before the, the Civil War and how his uh, uh, rise to the presidency, uh, which was very um, unexpected. And I would be very interested in a person who dealt with, like he did, with all, um, in listening to and learning from a person who dealt with all kinds of different political vectors and factors and cross-cutting considerations um, in terms of uh, the uh, keeping the union together and winning the war, in terms of what he had, advice he might provide in terms of our state dealing with our, our very complicated uh, politics uh, of, our, uh, of our state's fiscal challenge. So if I had one person I'd sit next to me, it'd be Abraham Lincoln. Representative Groh, you have one minute. Name as many Civil War generals as you can. Oh, God, that was after. <laughs> you have one that, minute. That was after I read more than um, 2,500 pages of the Shelby Foote trilogy, um, and that was many years ago. But I would go with um, Grant, uh, Sherman, uh, Lee, uh, Longstreet, Fitzporter, Meade, uh, Johnston, two Johnstons, then, um, well, a colonel that I uh, read a lot about, William Oates. And I'm going to stop there and let Senator T uh, Tobin, let Lukey talk. Like I said, <laughs> after I did 2,500, um, this is <laughs> after I read 2,500 pages decades ago, I was better. Senator Tobin, can you name two Civil War generals? Uh, I think Cliff took all of the ones that I would have named 
and added many more additional names to that. That is an impressive party trick. Rep. Cliff Grow was elected to the Alaska State Legislature in 2022 and serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the House Ways and Means Committee, and the House Military and Veterans Affairs Committee. Our next conversation is with Rep. Zach Fields. He's serving his third term in the Alaska State Legislature and currently serves on the House Labor and Commerce Committee and the House Health and Social Services Committee. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Tobin and I sit down with Representative Zach Fields. Good morning, Senator Tobin. Good morning, Mike. And Representative Fields, good morning. Morning, Mike. So today, the day that we are recording this, I believe, is day 71, a little over halfway through uh, what everybody's expecting to be a legislative session that goes to about 121 days. Representative Fields, give me the the brief 5,000-foot view of the uh, first session of the 33rd Alaska Legislature from your perspective. It kind of reminds me when I was in second grade and we were progressing painfully slowly through American history, and we had only gotten up to you know, the pilgrims and Thanksgiving by about March. And then the teacher realized she had another 200 years of history to cover in several weeks. And we rushed through That's like every legislative session. We waste immense amounts of time for the first two to three months. And then people realize, oh my God, the snow is melting. Better pass some bills. And so, you know, here we are. A uh, BSA bill has passed out of the House Education Committee. I know you all been working on a BSA bill. Laddie Shaw is trying to bury a defined benefits bill on the House side. I know Lukey and, and Jesse on the Lukey on the Senate side, Jesse on the House side have introduced a great RPS bill. We've made some progress on child care, but if you step back, you're like, wow, every year they're so slow. Out of curiosity, from your perspective, what is it like to have 17 new classmates? You have such a large freshman class in the House of Representatives here in the Alaska State Legislature that I'm wondering if it's slower because those folks are having to to learn how the system works. No, it's slow because we uh, our culture is to move very slowly as a legislature. You look around the country and a lot of legislatures move way faster. Um, there are a lot of great new members from the freshman class and in both parties. So I actually think the composition of the legislature is stronger today than probably at any other point um, this century. I definitely think it's younger, which I really appreciate uh, for the folks who are having to, to figure out how to new, navigate the school system or having to figure out how to build and have their family thrive. We have the right people in the room to really make some good policy in those areas. So before we get into some of the policy that uh, we want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, kind of some inside baseball stuff. Uh, Representative Fields, this is your first time in a minority organization. You've always been in the majority organization. Uh, Senator Tobin, this is uh, your first time. You're a staffer in a minority organization, and now you are in a majority organization. We've spoken a little bit about that, uh, Senator Tobin, your kind of transition. Representative Fields, how has that transition been from the majority to the minority? (laughs) I don't think it's clear who's in the majority in the House. There's a majority of House members who support raising the BSA, support restoring defined benefits, support dealing with child care, and support expanding clean, affordable, renewable energy, which are the four things I care most about. So the question is, in two tripartisan organizations, 
can you advance meaningful bills? It's interesting because your current House majority is non-binding, and so it does allow for these other groups to form around collective ideas or collective interests. How is that when regards you've been in a minority, excuse me, you've been in a majority before that was a binding caucus? The House majority is a binding caucus, and some of their members have disagreed with that. So is it a binding caucus that you then deny as a binding caucus? You know, that's why I say it's unclear who's really in the majority at this point. I feel um, like we just broke some really big news with that. I think we've been able to make progress on some important issues, and it's clear that there is some good cross-party, cross-caucus collaboration. And I mean, actually, in terms of passing bills that are important, that's not really any different from last time. Uh, you are listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Luke Yeltobin. So let's talk about some of the policy issues that are of most importance. Uh, let's begin with the uh, the base student allocation, the education funding bill. As uh, Representative Fields noted, there are two bills that are both in the, the respective finance committees. Uh, are you both confident that uh, education funding will pass in 2023? And do you hazard to guess at what level? Yes, and I think the aggregate education funding will be north of $1,000, um, whether that is straight BSA or some combination of BSA and, and other funds, you know, Reads Act implementation, pupil transportation. There's a bunch of other functions that are important in the schools. I would have to wholeheartedly agree with Zach. I see this legislature really recognizing and understanding the education funding crisis we are in. And there are many levers that we can pull, whether it's a straight BSA increase, whether it's adding additional resources to pupil transport, which has been woefully underfunded for the last five to eight years, uh, whether it's adding in some additional resources for the implementation of the Alaska Reads Act, or also helping out our libraries and our imagination library. There is real energy around getting some resources into the institutions that support our youngest Alaskans. What I think is also really interesting is that both the House and the Senate bill offer two-year, or in the Senate's case, three-year funding mechanisms for a BSA increase. One of the things that we've heard resoundingly is that our schools need stability and they need predictability. And overwhelmingly, the policy committees of both the House and the Senate recognize that stability must come with dedicated resources, additional resources each year. Having said that, I think I'm confident we'll do this if Alaskans continue to vigorously advocate. So if you care about it, keep advocating. You know, in the House Education Committee, the Koch brothers flew in 20 people to sit in a committee and trash public education. But guess what? Like 100 Alaskans showed up and supported public education. So that continued advocacy is essential, but with that advocacy, we will prevail. So we'll see if this uh, optimistic attitude uh, exists with the next issue I wanted to bring up, and that is the uh, the defined benefits uh, uh, bill that has been uh, highly touted. It's one of the priorities of the Senate majority. Uh, Senator Tobin, is that a piece of legislation that uh, has any chance of passing in 2023, or is that a much lo- longer discussion? To be quite frank, I think we'll see that come out of negotiations in the second session of the 33rd legislature. I know that there are many who want to be very methodical and very intentional about having that bill be thoroughly vetted, and I recognize and understand where they're coming from 
we don't want the public to think we haven't done our homework when it comes to the actuarials, when it comes to the projections. This is a very deliberate step that people are taking with a lot of risk, particularly here in the Senate majority. I don't think we'll see that large piece of legislation move to the finish line here at the end of the first session, but I do believe we'll have it completed by the end of the second. Representative Fields, do you disagree? No, I think what you're saying is uh, Jesse Bjorkman's Labor and Commerce Committee look at every possible facet of a bill where you just have a lot of options. You know, the way that you craft a defined benefit program, there are myriad options. What do you include? What do you not include? What are the safety mechanisms to make sure that the program is funded? And he's looking at all of it. I think, you know, when that bill is ready to be reported that from that committee, they will have looked at every possible stress test that you should put on a bill like that. And it will be a very strong program. And ultimately, I think we will get it passed. That's the hardest bill that we're going to have to pass. But I think we'll be able to get it done. Because again, if there was a defined benefit bill on the House floor today, it would pass just like on the Senate floor. On March 27th, the uh, Senate Education Committee held a a meeting where we uh, heard some really compelling testimony about kind of the issues with early childhood, uh, childhood education and child care in the state of Alaska. Uh, Before we started, I asked uh, uh, Representative Fields, uh, uh, his priorities and child care was one of those priorities. Can you kind of give me the the brief overview of where you are on that issue and what solutions are available? Yeah, so we've got a couple of house bills. I introduced a bill, House Bill 46, which is sectoral bargaining, a child care trust, and a corporate tax credit for companies that invest in child care. Um, Representative Colomb, Representative Armstrong, and I introduced another bill that that expands the number of parents who are eligible for subsidies. So we have more uh, working class parents who are eligible for subsidies and it um, directs the department to raise the subsidy level to reflect the actual cost of care. Both of those are good bills. I expect the health and social services committee um, will advance one sort of consolidated bill to the finance committee. And I think we'll be able to get that bill passed and get it over to the Senate. Child care is important, but I think we have to look at it in the broader context of early child care and learning. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that in the last decade, inflation-adjusted cuts have annihilated our ability as a state to help kids learn to read and to help kids have a safe environment to grow up. So just to give one example, the Infant Learning Program, which is a really important public health program, right now the Department of Health is screening kids who are not meeting their developmental milestones and we're not giving them assistance because that program has been cut about 30% when you look at inflation-adjusted cuts. So we need to we need to make sure that program is adequately funded. Um, in the House Finance Committee yesterday, the Finance Committee reversed a subcommittee action and defunded uh, part of the Best Beginnings program, a really important literacy program. So the House Finance Committee said, hey, poor kids, that one book per month that you get, yeah, you're not going to get that anymore. I'm sorry, but that's insane. That program costs you know, $100,000 to expand, and they cut it. Really? And that's just one example of, you know, monster dividends have annihilated our education system and our early career and learning system. And, you know, best beginnings is one casualty. So we're going to have to claw back that funding. Um, We're at risk of losing Head Start funding because our Head Start program has been so decimated. Now, it is good. Yesterday in um, finance, Bryce Edgman added some funding back to Head Start. That's important. We need to expand pre-K funding. So child care is really important, but we have to look at it in the broader constellation. What are we doing to provide kids a safe environment where they are learning to read and they're ready to thrive when they enter kindergarten? 
I think one of the things that always really surprises me is the number 17 million. 17 million is what it would take to expand universal voluntary pre-K across the state of Alaska. When put into context of the larger state budget, it is such a small amount of money to do such incredible work to help get our kids ready for school, to learn, to read, to be productive and engaged young citizens. And yet we argue about 33 million here and 45 million there. And all of a sudden we can't fund some of these evidence-backed programs for our youngest citizens. It is frustrating to me. To put that in a really simple context, that's about $25 on your dividend check. So if I asked any family in my district, you know, would you take $25 off your dividend check so every kid in Alaska could have pre-K? Every single person would say yes. So uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of big elephants in the room, and one of them is something that you just referenced, and that is the permanent fund dividend. I've been in this building since 2015, and every year the permanent fund dividend is the key debate metric. Everything centers around that, and then we we can spiral out and make decisions, good decisions or bad decisions from that. So uh, Representative Fields, the, the PFD, uh, big picture, what is your take on, on the PFD as something that is uh, important in these discussions, and where do you want to see that uh, land uh, by the end of this 23rd Alaska legislature? Yeah, well, I think this year in particular, there's broad recognition among citizens, among people who are active in government, among journalists that, you know, for the last 10 years, we have paid much larger than average dividends, and we have among the worst economic performance in the country, disturbing out migration, our university is in shreds. And, you know, we can look back and say, do big dividends and annihilation of public services produce the kind of state where we want to live? No. So, you know, I think what's different this year is that the Senate majority and our coalition came together and said, hey, our priorities are education and defined benefits. So we actually have a state with a civilized standard of living. And that's very different from past years because in past years you haven't had caucuses come together and say, actually, our focus is going to be making this state a great place to live. And, you know, the other key difference is when the governor came to the uh, legislature and gave his annual state of the state to a, to a joint session of the House and Senate, he didn't mention a big dividend once. What he talked about was making Alaska the best place for families to live. So you have this sort of disconnect between the governor's past obsession with a big dividend versus his present focus on making Alaska a great place for families. And, you know, those two are inconsistent with one another, just to be honest. But... I give him credit for shifting toward making Alaska a great place to live for families. And that really opens the door to fund the kind of services we need to restore Alaska to being a great place to live, which, as Lukey pointed out, is eminently affordable. You know, that's the thing. We can afford to pay a historically average dividend in the neighborhood of $1,000, a little over $1,000, and fund every early literacy program, every public health program that protects kids, and fully fund the BSA and adequately fund our university without raising a dime in new revenue. Now, I am personally supportive of of new revenue, but the way the math works out, we can fund a historically average dividend and every other program that's important for the state to be a great place to live. So don't let anyone tell you we can't afford to be a great state. The one part that's always really intriguing to me is the, the lack of real focus and attention on deferred maintenance, that right now we are at a critical turning point, a precipice, if you will, And if we do not start putting resources into ensuring our university buildings and facilities maintain their efficacy and are able to 
to continue to welcome students into their their buildings if we don't put these resources into our schools and rebuilding our schools that are absolutely degraded and just falling apart at the seams where our children are unsafe if we don't put these resources into the marine highway if we do not put these resources into our transportation infrastructure and building out our multimodal infrastructure to ensure that those facilities are able to be utilized we are really doing a disservice to Alaskans and that's where some of these resources must go I remember having a conversation with our director of the Division of Natural Resources, and he reminded me that way stations, those beautiful rest stops that you stop in on the way to Seward, have a 25-year life expectancy. For some reason, I did not realize that we needed to replace the outhouses. We needed to replace the parking lots because those are things that every Alaskan enjoys on their way to do great things in the great outdoors. And if we do not maintain those resources, we will not be a great place for people to even visit. We won't be a great place for people to think, I had this amazing experience in Alaska, and maybe I'll consider moving there. Or maybe I'll share with my friends and family how wonderful that experience was, and I'll encourage them to to take a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip up to the great north. It is intriguing to me and fascinating and ultimately very frustrating that that is not a part of this conversation when we're looking at the full picture of our state resources and how we allocate them. Yeah, two-thirds of uh, marine highway positions right now are vacant. You have a bare-bones marine highway schedule. What a missed opportunity to attract travelers to Alaska and strengthen the economy from southeast all the way into the interior. So, you know, when it comes to investing in infrastructure, a little bit of investment goes a long way in terms of economic growth. So I want to talk about something that I've been working on uh, quite a bit. I spent much of the weekend working on uh, my long overdue sectional analysis for the uh, the uh, Renewable Portfolio Standards Bill, which is a, a really good bill and, and is an intriguing concept. And I know it's a concept that you support, uh, Representative Fields. Um, so real briefly, uh, renewable portfolio standard legislation would assimp- uh, essentially uh, call for the utilities along the rail belt to reach uh, certain standards for renewable energy generation over time, uh, 80% by, I think, uh, to 2040. Representative Fields, why is a, a renewable portfolio standard something that you support, and uh, is, it, uh, is it achievable? Well, it's eminently achievable, and you know, there's been a lot of modeling, um, including by federal agencies, to demonstrate that it's achievable. And when you look around the country, renewable portfolio standards are the most successful state practice to accelerate deployment of renewable energy. You know, this is the biggest issue that people have not looked at because of the appropriate focus on BSA and and defined benefits. But NSTAR has told uh, utilities in the rail belt they will be cutting off guaranteed supply of cook and light gas over the next seven years, um, starting with Homer Electric. And NSTAR has told these utilities and the public and legislators that Imported LNG prices will double or triple compared to what we pay now. So, you know, I know that my heating bill at our house peaks at $400 a month in the winter. Our prices will be $800 to $1,200 per month in the winter if we don't take aggressive action to increase um, our homegrown energy. Now, I don't know that we can completely avoid some gas generation, but we need to aggressively expand renewable energy generation right now. The last renewable project of any scale that we deployed in South Central Alaska was 40% cheaper than the current price we pay. It is orders of magnitude cheaper than the price we will pay. And RPS is so important because right now when utilities want to build uh, renewable generation, the Regulatory Commission of Alaska, which has to approve their projects, looks at what is the cost of gas today? 
what they need to be looking at is what's the cost of gas going to be when it doubles or triples and do the economic analysis that way because our goal has to be shielding consumers against price increases. The RPS is the single most important thing we can do to hold down utility costs for consumers, and we have to get it done. The one thing that uh, uh, in that entire answer that was missing, and I'm just going to say has been missing from the conversation in this building for a long time, is global climate change and the, the warnings that are coming out from the experts. There was a report uh, a couple of weeks ago that was really dire. What factor does global climate change play in the urgency in uh, addressing some of these issues, especially the transition to, uh, to renewable energy? Well, you've heard me say before, Mike, that Typhoon Murbrook really shook my core foundation of what it means to support and help our rural communities thrive. It was beyond devastating to watch the homes of my friends and people that I love flood and how we will be experiencing increased storms of multitude and magnitudes in that regard in perpetuity if we don't do something drastic to radically reduce the carbon in the atmosphere. I said in my campaign that this was going to be a focus of my time in office, that it was going to be something that I worked aggressively to address. And the opportunity to introduce the Renewable Standards Portfolio really gave me uh, a platform to really continue to talk about how we need to do everything that we can to rapidly decarbonate the atmosphere with an eye on ensuring local voice, ensuring that Indigenous communities are able to have a say in what resources and what uh, installations are put into their space, and also ensuring that we collectively take the burden and responsibility of managing those assets. I think this particular piece of legislation does some really interesting things. One that I absolutely adore is the opportunity for rail belt utilities to help reach their renewable standards benchmarks by purchasing renewable uh, credits from our utilities in rural Alaska. This will help inspire investment in rural Alaska to build out the renewable infrastructure and help our rail belt communities support that endeavor. That, for me, is a big win for everyone in this state. Representative Fields, in regards to the RPS, uh, do you think that uh, uh, the utilities are going to uh, uh, become partners in this process? Well, what you have right now is a disconnect between some of the utility CEOs who are sort of trying to kill this bill behind closed doors and a lot of the utility board members, many of whom are very supportive of clean energy goals and who understand that if we don't aggressively deploy renewable sources, um, consumers are going to pay the price. And I think it's important for those utility board members to be assertive because they are the representatives of, you know, our co-op owners. So uh, we're going to wrap up uh, this edition of the uh, of the Empty Office podcast with the uh, question that I've been asking all of our guests. And uh, and uh, I, I prefaced this before we started, so hopefully uh, Rep Fields has been thinking about it. If you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote, and you get to drop them into this building to help us out, who would that be? Alex Miller. Who in the world is Alex Miller? Uh, Alex Miller was the longtime fixer for Governor Egan, um, and when you look at a lot of the reasons that Alaska is a, a great place to live and work today, it goes back to Alex Miller from the North Slopes Taxing Authority to Alaska's best-in-the-country labor laws. You have been listening to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave a positive re- review, which will help spread the word. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.